One of the things about our show is it's going to be uh, unique. You are what you do. You can say any amount of things that you want to say, but what you do is what everybody sees. People are like, oh, I'm just going to JV it. It's just JV it. Like, what the hell is that? I cannot tell you how excited I am to hang out with you guys today, so thank you so much. Well, then that end buyer could come back and say, well, I didn't fully understand that it was subject to. That's not not a thing. Like, the SEC has thought of all of these things. They've been here since 1932. And you can do what you want with your property. Buyers have time. They have negotiating power. They have options. Oh, my gosh. I am blown away by your inexperience. And they've been in business 20 years. And that includes things other people put on your property, right? It's your property that'll be okay. (laughs) Suddenly, Cousin Jimmy's in a lawsuit. Innovation is replacing one contract or one obligation with another out with the old and with the new yes hey everybody welcome to this show today our topic is the legalities of purchasing property subject to existing loans i'm andy fowler and i'm here with my partner sean st Clair. if you're new to the show make sure to subscribe to the channel and give us a like you can find us on facebook and you can find us on YouTube. On YouTube, we are at InRem Podcast. That is at InRem Podcast. With that, we're going to go to Sean, who has our legal update. Thank you, Andy. So continuing with my What If series that I've been uh, going through here, my um, What If for today is, what if a seller refuses to close escrow after there's been a fully executed purchase contract, meaning This thing's been executed, escrow's been open, earnest money's been deposited, um, and the buyer is is ready to go, and all of a sudden the seller has seller's remorse, or the seller decides they don't want to proceed with the transaction. Um, What can a buyer do in that situation? And the remedy really is for a buyer to pursue specific performance of that contract. Um, They have the right to go into court and to basically ask the court to force or require that the seller sell the contract to that buyer. And the purchase contract is going to have a provision in there that's going to say that if the buyer has to do that, then the the buyer is going to also be awarded their attorney's fees. And so If a seller refuses to sell, they're subject to a specific performance action whereby the buyer can force them to sell and they will likely have to then end up paying the buyer's attorney's fees for such action. There's also language that is generally in a purchase contract that says the buyer could could walk away. The buyer could say, no, not walk away, but but could, could, could not pursue the property but could pursue damages. So in lieu of specific performance, the buyer could say, okay, seller, you're in breach and therefore I get damages for your breach. Well, what are those damages? Well, let's say the buyer has hired a inspector and paid a a home inspector uh, money. Let's say the buyer has paid uh, for an appraisal of the property and and is out those appraisal costs. So those are, are small damages the buyer could recover, but the big damages would be that the buyer can prove that they basically uh, are purchasing a property for less than the fair market value, or they got a good deal. 
you know, so what would it take the buyer to buy a comparable property elsewhere? And so, you know, you would basically be looking at, at that, the difference between whatever the buyer would pay to buy a comparable property elsewhere, i.e. the fair market value minus what the contract is on this property. Now in an appreciating market, that could be pretty substantial. I mean, a, a 30, 45 day, 60 day escrow and values could go up and you could end up with, um, you know, a pretty, pretty big margin there um, or gap between the purchase price and the, the fair market value. And maybe the buyer negotiated for themselves a great, you know, purchase price. Uh, and, and, you know, they are purchasing it under fair market value. They would be entitled to damages against the seller for that difference as, as well. So um, two options for, for a buyer, if a seller uh, breaches or refuses to close escrow after a contract is executed, first is specific performance. Then the second is to not pursue the specific performance, but to pursue the seller for the breach and for damages. All right. Thank you, Sean, for the legal update. Um, a reminder and an update. Beginning in July, uh, coming up here shortly in about a month, but beginning in July, the Inrim Podcast is introducing in the beginning what we're calling the Creative Finance Collective. That is an opportunity for you, the, the viewer, you, the real estate investor, to become a part of something. And uh, again, what we're calling that something is the Creative Finance Collective. The Creative Finance Collective is a collective of attorneys and professionals throughout the country who are elbow deep in creative finance and creative finance laws in their respective jurisdictions. And the collective is an opportunity for lawyers like Sean, for lawyers like Alan Seshker in Texas, uh, for lawyers like Jeff Watson in Ohio, you name it, the professionals that are doing this in, in, on a deep level to get together and discuss the nuances of creative finance and how they're going about doing it and, and dealing with creative finance in their respective areas. And this is an additional opportunity for you, the listener, to participate and be interactive, to not only listen to the collective of attorneys who are discussing creative finance matters, but interactive in a manner that allows you, the listener, to ask us questions all along the way. There's not going to be question segments. The entire segment is an opportunity for you to ask questions and really a panel, so to speak, of uh, creative finance lawyers that have something to say and are in this and, and are navigating the process. Uh, we're really excited about it. I think it's going to be a neat opportunity. Sean, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those unique uh, opportunities for somebody to sit in and, and listen to uh, very knowledgeable attorneys dealing with creative finance, discuss high level topics regarding creative finance. Um, you know, we're not going to have any type of formal presentation. Uh, we might have a theme or a topic for the evening uh, that uh, we'll start discussing, but the the conversation can just kind of weave and, and, and go. Um, my family about a month ago, we were in Nashville and we had the opportunity to attend a couple of nights at the Grand Ole Opry. And one of the things that we discovered about the Opry was every night is unique and you never know who's going to take the stage. And that's the collective. You know, each each week it's going to be unique and you don't know who's going to show up. You know, it, 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 
it, it's going to be attorneys who are very knowledgeable that are going to pop in. We and, may not and, even know who's going to show up. We might not even know who's going to show up. Yeah. It's just, you know, the opportunity for attorneys to pop in and say, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to discuss these topics. I'm ready to, to interact with the audience, to have a conversation. Um, and so it's a really, uh, kind of a unique, um, thing. It's not really a formal show per se. It's more of, like you said, it's a collective. It's, it's us attorneys coming together, networking with each other. And oh, by the way, you as, you know, investors working within the space, get to watch that. All right. With that, keep that on your calendar. It'll begin in July and all you have to do is show up, watch and participate. Uh, and it's going to be a good time. We can't wait to do it. All right. With that, let's get into our topic today. We're talking about the legalities of a subject to transaction. As we get into this, Sean, how often have you in discussion groups or you talking with clients or seen things on social media heard, oh, you can't even do that. It's I, I think I've heard it's illegal. I can't do this at all. Right. There seem, seems to be some misconception or misunderstanding about the legality of creative finances as a general rule. Is that what you've seen? Yeah, I, I have people reach out to me on a regular basis to say, hey, I, I'm trying to do this transaction and the real estate agent involved is saying that it's illegal, that the title company is saying it's illegal, that the attorney is saying it, it's illegal. Um, and part I've discovered, and that's why I've started trying to change the vernacular um, uh, on this is part of the problem is the the language being used. So the whole idea of a subject to transaction, a sub to transaction, um, it's that's kind of a new way of explaining a transaction that's been around forever, which is a wrap financing transaction. Um, and so whenever I can, um, because I, I believe subject twos, you know, when when you're doing it with a warranty deed conveyance that it, it should be a wrap transaction. It should be structured as a wrap transaction. And I try to use that language because attorneys and judges, title companies, even real estate agents know what wrap transactions are, but they don't fully appreciate or, or know the whole idea of sub two subject to, it just sounds kind of, you know, this new thing that there is only going to get them in trouble. Um, but when you start explaining it as a wrap, or, hey, we're going to do an agreement for sale, a contract for deed or contract for bond, um, an installment contract uh, where, whereby, you know, we're going to pay to purchase it over time and we're going to leave the existing loans in place. They understand that as well. But it's when we use this, you know, new, newer language of subject to, sub to, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, what? And, and if, unless you're familiar with it and you're, you're working within the investor space, you don't understand it or appreciate it. So I, I want to get back to using terms like wrap and agreement for sale and lease with option and those types of things. Yeah. And our hope in this episode is to really, to put some of those questions to rest and discuss, and to discuss this question of the legality of subject to transactions. We're pleased to have as a guest, Michael E. Gross, attorney in Maryland with the law office of Michael E. Gross. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate having you. My pleasure to help you, sure. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about you, your practice, and the law offices of Michael E. Gross. Well, as is sort of obvious from uh, the, uh, the beard, I've been practicing law for a while, about 45 years in Maryland and DC. The practices revolved primarily around 
um, real estate in all its forms, particularly working with investors and uh, other folks. I've been dealing also with alternative financing, subject to land contracts, wraparounds, all of that, basically for my entire practice. Uh, got background as well with litigation, with a few other things, so it's easy easier sometimes to look at a client's circumstances and be able to diagnose a, a problem or, uh, or help him with something that's going on. Uh, I particularly like dealing with alternative financing because I like outside the box thinking. And in the modern real estate uh, market, it's outside the box. As you say, most real estate agents don't know it. Um, they're not taught it anymore, although they used to be taught uh, alternative financing in the old days. As a matter of fact, in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area, when I first came into practice in the late 70s, there were alternative financing strategies in the local uh, real estate agent communities, sort of uh, official contracts that they like to use. It dropped out. Uh, in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and I think that was probably not a good thing uh, for real estate because it left uh, the agents with only one tool to use. Uh, the idea of um, find a house, uh, find a mortgage, go to closing. If that's the only tool you know to sell real estate, you're handicapped very substantially. Uh, you don't know other other ways of doing it. So. We deal I'm, with other ways here. Michael, I'm reminded we had uh, as a guest um, an attorney in, in the Midwest, uh, Jeff Watson, who does a good bit of creative finance. And he likes to do a lot of, does a lot of work with Roth IRAs and things like that. But one of the things he noted, which is kind of similar to what you said, is he took issue with this idea that our current understanding of lending is conventional lending. And this idea is that as we understand it now, that seems conventional, but kind of within the history of, of lending, just in the short history of the United States, uh, conventional lending, uh, what we currently understand it is really not all that conventional given, given our history and that uh, the idea of creative financing in the history of it goes back a long time, really, since the beginning of our founding. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we picked up uh, real estate law, or all of, of America's laws, uh, from England, because when the colonists came over, they brought over what they knew. And this stuff really does go back into English law, if you really want to think about it deeply. Um, and it was in the late 70s, early 80s, when, when there were several changes made to banking law by the feds. Um, I spent a little bit of time as, as counsel the general counsel to a credit union. So I learned my share of banking law in the old days. Uh, they, the feds changed the banking law to the point where it became uh, profitable for the banks to originate new loans rather than to uh, allow the assumption or the, or the transfer of old loans. And since they could make more money that way, they started to push it. Yeah, in fact, um as you know, the credit unions were a major uh, lobby that uh, ended up with those new laws. Um, but before, uh, I think it's the Garn St. Germain Act, um, before that act, here in Arizona, 
we have an Arizona Supreme Court and, and a, a number of lower level court of appeals cases, um, basically a litany of authority that basically um, states that uh, Arizona does not like do on sale clauses because they believe them to be an unlawful restraint on alienation. Um, and in fact, uh, before Garn St. Germain, in order for a lender to invoke the do on sale clause, regardless of what the language was, it didn't matter. It didn't matter the language. If the lender wanted to invoke the do on sale clause, they had to show that their lien would be prejudiced, meaning you know, the, the property has gone down in value or because of the transfer or, you know, they've lost, you know, their lien uh, position or whatever it may be, but it couldn't be just, well, they transferred in. So now we have a right to accelerate. It had to be, no, you need to show that you can't, you can no longer foreclose and, and, you know, take, take the uh, payment out of the, the property. Um, but of course, Garn St. Germain did away with all of that, right? Well, not all of it, because Garn St. Germain only says under certain circumstances, the due on sale clause won't apply. Um, <clears throat> transfers, we'll say, within the nuclear family, uh, mm -hmm. inheriting property, transfers to a family planning trust, that kind of stuff. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, federal um, mortgage loan, and if, and if a loan transfers through the federal loan process, mm -hmm. the lenders can't uh, bring the due on sale clause into effect. Uh, it's interesting. There are two streams of thought on the enforceability of a due on sale clause. One is that it is uh, in restraint of trade and therefore shouldn't be permitted uh, unless you can show actual uh, damage and injury. And the other one, which is sort of the contract uh, theory, which says you signed up for it, you're stuck with it. Uh, I think I mean, I can't really look into the future, but even in some of the states that uh, abide by the contract theory, there are court cases which say, well, we're not going to allow it in this particular instance. We think the lender is not entitled for whatever purpose. Um, where it's going to go in the future, I don't know. But the, as a practical matter, uh, the due on sale clause is rather a paper tiger because the banks don't really have an interest in uh, declaring loans to be in default and foreclosing on the due on sale clause just because ownership changes. Uh, it costs them money. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a lender and you've got these two rooms, you know, the one over your left shoulder with all those good monthly paying mortgages and the one over your right shoulder with all the ones that are in default and costing you money, what incentive do you really have to take a loan that's paying every month out of the room on the left and throw it in the room on the right just because the name on the land records changed? It's gonna cost you money uh, to uh, enforce the, the joint sale clause. You gotta hire a lawyer, you gotta foreclose. You run the risk of the person stopping payment if mm -hmm. they're doing that. And thirdly, you've got to reserve, uh, which is sort of a technical banking thing, but you've got to take money out of your lendable assets and put it in a sinking fund against the possibility that you won't get paid in full at foreclosure. And that reduces your profitability. So the net result is the banks have no incentive, in my opinion, to actually bring the due on sale clause into effect. It's a theoretical possibility 
But in the 45 odd years I've been practicing law, as long as the loan hasn't gone into default, uh, the only time I ever knew a bank to uh, bring the due on sale clause into effect was in one very limited circumstance in the state of Maryland where the loan could only be held by a low income owner occupant. And the bank called up the investor buyer and said, we don't want to foreclose, we have to foreclose. But they talked about it and the bank then um, misplaced the file for 60 days and the, uh, the investor refinanced and that was that. Right. So what you're saying basically is from a bank's perspective, they would essentially, if they uh, declare uh, a breach of the due on sale clause, which most due on sale clause, especially the, the big ones like the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, say that it's an option. The lender has the option, unlike your scenario where the lender had to. It's an option. So, But if the lender exercises that option, they're taking a performing loan and they're moving it from the performing loan bucket to the non-performing loan bucket. And then that hurts their ability to lend because now they have, you know, extra reserves, some downgrades, you know, that go on. And now they can't make as many loans anymore, which, you know, that's how they make their money, right? <laughs> Is originating loans and collecting interest, right? So now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're harming yourself on a loan that was otherwise performing. There's no really good business reason for doing it, uh, in my opinion. Right. Um, now I'm not I'm not running one of the major banks, so you can't uh, can't take it for gospel from me. But the other thing, of course, is that from what I've seen, a lot of these banks that collect loans don't own them. They're just doing the collecting work, mm -hmm. and the loans themselves are owned by these uh, loan pools. Uh, or by insurance companies in these large, you know, tranches. Uh, and, and they want a set rate of return. They don't care who is making the payments. And the servicing banks don't care. A, it's not their loan. And secondly, they get paid for doing servicing. Mm -hmm. so I think there's a disincentive there for them to think on any of the uh, investors because it costs them uh, business. So. so are you aware of any federal statute or other legal authority um, that basically makes it illegal for a seller to sell and a buyer to buy real estate subject to the existing loans? I don't know of anything that makes it illegal. I don't know. I mean, illegal means the police are going to come out with handcuffs and take you downtown. No, it's right. not illegal. What it is, is a breach of contract. The seller, when he bought the house, entered into a contract with a bank, which said, I will pay you off if I sell. Okay. The buyer, the seller has now breached that contract by not paying the bank off. In any circumstance, in any contract where there is a breach, the only thing that happens is that it gives the non-breaching party the option of taking action if they want to. They don't have to. Mm -hmm. And breaches of contract happen all the time. If you go into a restaurant and you order the, the you know, $25 steak and potato and pea dinner, 
uh, the guy takes your order and comes back and says, I'm sorry, we were out of peas, so I've given you green beans instead. Well, technically, he's just breached his agreement with you. You know, you could say, no, I wanted steak, potatoes, and peas, take it back, and they'd have to take it back. But if you say, fine, green beans are good for me, then you've just condoned the breach of contract and agreed to go ahead. Well, same thing with a bank. Uh, if they dis don't decide to do anything about it, they've simply accepted the situation. So really all it is, is a simple breach of contract. Now I take it from your question, or from your answer rather, uh, because Sean about, asked about any federal statutory or any other federal authority that prohibits or, or, or makes that illegal and, and, and there's not. Are you aware of any state law that uh, attempts to prohibit uh, a subject to transaction? Well, I'm only admitted to practice in Maryland and DC. So officially, I can only talk about Maryland and DC. Nothing in either place makes it illegal. But from everyone I've ever talked to, there is no state law that says you can't do it. Um, two people, the buyer and the seller, make an agreement between the two of them. And it's, as far as I know, not illegal anywhere in the nation. Well, well, let's talk about those agreements that the you know buyer and seller you know make amongst themselves for a subject to transaction. What are the different methods that uh, uh, by which a buyer can acquire property subject to the seller's existing loans? What are what are the the mechanisms for that? Well, the simplest way of doing it is providing in the contract that the buyer is going to take over the seller's payments. Mm -hmm. uh, and around Maryland and DC, the, the language simply says, I agree to buy the property subject to your mortgage uh, with an approximate principal balance of so-and-so with such and such interest rate, mm -hmm. you state that. Uh, and the buyer agrees that they will make the payments and hold the seller harmless uh, on any any loan charges they will you know they'll pay the loan and of course the settlement documents then have provisions in them where the parties acknowledge what's going on and the buyer formally agrees to uh to pay um the concept of taking title subject to an existing mortgage of course applies if you're going to uh we'll say do a land installment sales contract mm, yeah called contract for deed mm -hmm. It's, I consider that like buying real estate on the layaway plan. Uh, the, you're making the monthly payments, the seller continues to own the property. And at some point you then come in and, uh, and finish the purchase process. But while you're making the easy monthly payments, uh, you obtain an ownership interest in the property and it's subject to the seller's mortgage. Uh, you know, in a sense, if you're doing a master lease situation where you're going to be uh, leasing the property for a number of years and we'll say um, paying uh, rent to the seller, which is basically their carrying cost, mm -hmm. you're taking the property subject to their mortgage until the point where you decide you want to buy it and then you go forward. Um, and then you can add different uh, mechanisms around that to where uh, you use a wrapper on mortgage where you pay mm -hmm. the seller and part of the money goes to them and part goes to the underlying bank. 
the details of how you do it are, are several, but the idea making the seller's mortgage payments is pretty much basic to all of them. Now here in Arizona, we don't use them because I think the purposes of why some attorneys use them and some investors use them wouldn't be served in Arizona because of our disclosure statutes um, regarding transfers to and from trusts. Um, you have to disclose the name and address of the beneficiary of the trust. But I know there's some attorneys and some investors who uh, like to do the subject to transaction through um, acquisition by a land trust. Did, did, does that happen much in Maryland and DC? Land trusts are a more Western thing. Mm. Uh, they're, not, they're not so Eastern. Mm. Uh, people create, usually in Maryland, if you're gonna be an investor, you're gonna wanna pick up the property in the name of an entity for liability protection reasons. Yeah. So normally people use LLCs. And in, in Maryland and DC, uh, an LLC, the only name associated with an LLC is the resident agent. Uh, nobody really knows uh, who's behind the LLC. So uh, people like to consider anonymity or whatever. I think it's overblown. But um, the great thing about it is if you buy a, a real estate in an entity's name, you can then sell the entity rather than selling the real estate and avoid transfer taxes. But that's a whole different discussion uh, for another time. Um, but but uh, trusts tend to be more Western in my experience. Well, and it sounds like, you know, they're obviously in, on, in the Western states where the trust is used, there is no, like you mentioned, liability protection. So they're doing it in some combination of an LLC and, and a trust. And really the only reason they're doing it is for anonymity's sake. Uh, but it sounds like the limited liability cup company records in a state like Maryland are already anonymous other than, as you mentioned, the registered agent, is that right? They're basically anonymous. I, personally, I think anonymity is a little bit overblown. Um, if you're the one running around, renting the property, talking to the tenants, uh, talking to the contractors, whatever, you know, it really does not take a Nobel scientist to realize you have something to do with this property. Right. Um, and frankly, if, if, uh, if it came down to some really dirty litigation where you you actually risked some kind of personal liability, if somebody's digging that hard, they'll figure out who owns the LLC or whatever. Um, when you're talking about liability protection, at least in Maryland and DC, if you create an entity and then you maintain it properly and you don't treat it like it's just another pocket of your jeans and arbitrarily wash money in and out of it, the corporate veil will protect you. It's difficult to pierce the corporate veil uh, as long as you uh, manage your corporation or your LLC appropriately. Yeah, and that's my take on it too. I mean, the corporate veil is going to apply whether you're, you have anonymity or not. I mean, it doesn't change that. Um, and I'm with you. I think anonymity is overrated. Uh, the only time that I find it useful is if I have a um, client who has maybe some professional licenses um, and they're out doing, you know, investor type stuff unrelated to their license 
and you're going to have an unhappy person, for example, you know, with the whole do not call list and the texting and, you know, where they say, oh, you violated, you know, the different federal and state laws regarding, you know, spamming and do not call. And then they see who owns the LLC and then they research and see, oh, they're licensed as whatever. And, and instead of just dealing with, with it on a civil basis, they go and file like a professional complaint. While it's defensible because it doesn't relate to their professional complaint, it's still a hassle, right? It's still a hassle. You know, anybody <laughs> can do anything. Right. Early days, I was drafting contracts for, for a client. He comes in, he says, I want a contract that's absolutely guaranteed lead pipe cinch. Nobody's going to sue me. And I had to tell him that that's impossible because the, the, there's no traffic cop at the front door of the courthouse who's going to regulate that. The traffic cop is the judge who throws the case out. I mean, I could sue both of you for having used a nuclear missile to kill my great grandfather. You know, I could file that lawsuit. You'd have to answer it, whatever. And the fact that he died years before you or nuclear missiles is not going to prevent me from suing. It would prevent me from winning, of course. Right. So um, to some extent, if you're in business, you have to be you have to understand that there may be people out there who are going to come looking for you mm -hmm. and you just have to act and run your business in a way that's going to minimize the risks, uh, create an entity. We'll say, if you've got dealing with real estate, buy insurance, sufficient insurance, including maybe an umbrella policy, manage the property. Well, don't let it deteriorate. Um, Execute all of your documents properly in the name of the entity, whatever. Don't arbitrarily uh, maintain good business records. And if you do all of that, the entity will be the one who takes the hit, not you personally, no matter what your situation is. Yeah, for sure. Now, we were discussing earlier uh, the due on sale clause of the likelihood of, of when banks call loans due. And... Back and forth, we made mention of the Garn St. Germain Depository Institutions Act. Um, I think it's worthwhile, especially for the listener and the real estate investor, to have, have some sort of context as to what that is and what it was designed to do. So why don't you explain the Garn St. Germain Act? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it was, a, as you said, it was a bank regulation act. The important point from our point of view is that the feds realized that under certain circumstances, um, it's just inappropriate for people to have to worry about whether the bank is going to get angry with them if they change the name on their deed. Mm -hmm. So if you add a spouse, if you add children, if you inherit property, uh, if you put on second trusts on your mm -hmm. property, a lot of the due on sale clauses are worded in a way that say, if you transfer an interest in the real estate, right. well, technically putting a mortgage on the house is transferring an interest in the real estate, mm -hmm. second trust, whatever. And there were many circumstances where, where uh, 
Loan said, no second trusts allowed. Um, and Garn St. Germain came along and said, no. And in, in these certain circumstances, putting the house into a, um, an estate planning trust, we'll say, there's really no good reason to, to prevent this. Um, right. And to, to force people to refinance just in order to live their life, mm -hmm. to put it simply. Uh, I think there was a rule of, uh, of reasonability that, the, that uh, the feds came up with. And I think it's, it's a good idea. Yeah. Quite aside from the practical matters, you just don't have to worry. If you get divorced, for example, and you're, you're, you're splitting up ownership, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's not a time when you should worry about whether your lender has anything to say about it. Yeah. Well, the, the, one of the other critical things, um, and I was talking about the old line of authority in Arizona um, that Garn St. Germain did, uh, which was unfortunate for investors um, or, or even sellers and buyers who wanted to do, you know, subject to transactions, um, is it basically said, hey, if there's a federally insured loan and uh, that loan has a due on sale clause, it doesn't matter what your state courts have said. It doesn't matter what the state statutes state. You, you are going, you as a state and courts of your state are going to enforce that clause as written. So there's no, like in Arizona, how we said, no, we're going to throw out the language and just say, hey, only if you're prejudiced, we're going to, we're going to make that a requirement. Garn St. Germain said, no, you're out. Um, as to all real estate. And then of course, on the exceptions, you know, it's, it's for residential real estate. Um, but it did, you know, I, I don't know about you, but we've had cases where the borrower passed away and our clients, you know, well, we were helping to minister the estate. And um, so we're going to transfer it to the heirs and the bank's like, oh, no, 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 pay me, pay me. I need the whole thing paid off, you know, because um, the borrowers passed away. And we're like, no, 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 Garn St. Germain, right? Um, Good luck. So, you, you can't, they can't force it. No. Right. Yeah, it really helps in that, you know, scenario where, you know, the heirs want to take it over and maybe, you know, turn it into a rental or use it themselves or whatever. Yeah, it's, you know, as I said, I think the feds just decided that there are situations in which the lenders shouldn't interfere with how people run their lives. Right. And uh, um, so that that's since the night, I can't remember when. 19, 1982. 82, right? Newton, it was the early 80s. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's made a lot of people relax a little bit when situations like you're talking about come, come around. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the idea of a, of a breach of contract. And you gave the hypothetical of a restaurant and, you know, you, you swap out the, the vegetables. Um, in law school, we learned the idea of an efficient breach of a contract. Um, what is an efficient breach of, of a contract or your understanding of an efficient breach? You'll have to tell me. It's not a term, at least, that we okay. back in. See, my hair is whiter than yours, so that may be a newer uh, approach to the law. We did, we did common law uh, analysis, starting with the Hadley versus Baxendale, if you know the case. So No, I uh, no. Old crankshaft, broken crankshaft in uh, in post medieval England case. Yeah, tell me about efficient breach. So basically, the concept of an efficient breach is that there are times where it makes 
more financial sense to breach a contract and accept the consequences. So it's not a defense to a breach. Um, mm -hmm. It is a breach and you accept the consequences. You write the check for the damages. You accept what happens as a result mm -hmm. of, of the breach. And But there's times where you go and, and, and you should breach a contract because it's monetarily more beneficial for you to breach it than for you to perform, um, if you will. And so, um, you know, the way I see the do on sale clause is it's an efficient breach, uh, you know, or it can be an efficient breach, uh, potentially. Um, well, certainly it makes more sense for the bank to let the people just keep paying. Yeah. Uh, rather than for them to waste money on, uh, on enforcement. Uh, right. yeah, uh, I I'd have to agree with you. See the whole idea of breach of contract is it gives you the right to take action, right? But you're not forced to. You Correct. could ignore it if you want to. Yeah. Uh, you know, the landlord doesn't have to sue you on day two if you don't get the rent there on time. Right. Uh, they simply have the right to do it. Correct. So I don't know if um, you did much of this work back in the you know 2008 forward time period when you know all of a sudden you know, short sales and foreclosures and whatever. But during that whole time period, when you had homeowners whose properties were underwater and you had banks whose loans, you know, were not performing and, you know, whose security was at risk because the value of the properties weren't there. I mean, that was nothing but efficient breaches going on left and right. Oh, uh, absolutely. There yeah. were banks that, that let, um, let their mortgages go into arrears for months and months and months. Yeah. Uh, the last thing they wanted to do was number one, to have to spend the money on the real estate, uh, the real estate attorneys to, to do the foreclosing. And then of course, since the, the uh, owners couldn't pay, they'd wind up with the property, which they then had to manage and repair and heat and take care of and everything else. And they didn't want that expense either. And there were, I remember reading that uh, the banks basically said, we're going to let the defaulting owners live in the houses and maintain them for us. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have that burden during a time when we know darn well, we won't be able to resell the houses uh, to anybody else. And so it's an, it, it is an absolutely inefficient approach to uh, then enforce the, their uh, uh, right to foreclose in the event of non-payment. No question. Uh, yeah. It would yeah. make much more sense for them. You know, interesting you should mention it because, you know, every time there's a hiccup in the, uh, in the mortgage market and interest rates bounce, uh, alternative financing like due on sale and uh, like um, subject twos and land contracts and that stuff comes out of the woodwork. This is the, this is my fourth uh, hiccup already in real estate. And you can, you can just see every, every so often when the interest rates pop, uh, alternative financing gets popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there was a time after that, uh, the, the 08 financial crisis where every 
every consultation that Sean and I dealt with was an efficient breach. It, in Arizona, we have an anti-deficiency statute, which in certain cases prohibits the lender from pursuing the borrower for deficiency after the foreclosure. And uh, boy, we met with endless persons who were in a position where they could still afford to many of them weren't in a position where they could afford, but many were in a position they could still afford the mortgage. But the value of the house was so much lower, especially in a state like Arizona, so much less than what their loan was. In their mind, it was easier to just take the credit hit, walk and, you know, forego the property to the secured party, the lender, and let them take that and, and move on. But boy, we, it's, it felt like we saw it daily. Mm -hmm. Oh, no question. In, in Maryland, as D.C. as well, it was common uh, where the bankruptcy, you'd go into bankruptcy because you'd lost your job or, or whatever the situation was, and you'd be washed free from the debt. The lender had not foreclosed on you yet. and People would just continue to live in the house and say, until you throw me out, I'm going to take advantage of the free ride. Um, now, you, we can talk about the ethics of that, but when you're financially stressed, people do what they do. Well, and, and that raises a question on the ethics. I mean, as attorneys, you know, I was sitting down with, with homeowners and saying, okay, you know, here's the contract you signed with the bank. Here's what it looks like for you to continue to honor that contract. And here's what it looks like for you to no longer honor that contract and, you know, advise them of, you know, basically what it looks like on both sides and the risks and the, the benefits, you know, both ways. But ultimately I'm giving advice of what it looks like to breach a contract. I would never, it was my position. I never told, and I still never will tell a client to breach a contract, but I will advise them as to the, you know, risks of that and what it looks like to breach the contract. Um, what, what's your understanding, at least in Maryland, um, and DC on, you know, the ethics of attorneys being able to, you know, discuss with clients, the idea of, you know, breaching a contract and, and if it makes sense for them to just to breach and, and not perform. Well, I think if you're, if you're truly doing your job, uh, you have to discuss it with them and tell them what their options are. If somebody comes to you for legal advice, it's your responsibility to look at all, all uh, sides of the question uh, and tell them that you, these, are, these are different approaches to solving your problem. You're not their mother. You know, you're not going to tell them what to do right. uh, or discipline them if they don't which gets into awkward situations when you do tell a client what you suggest would be a good idea. They come back later, not having done it. And then now you have to dig them out of the hole, but that's, um, but no, you, you, you're obligated to tell your client about all the possible approaches to their problem. Uh, and they're the ones who make the decision, you know, it, um, uh, you, you've probably been there when the client goes, well, you tell me what to do. And the answer is, well, I can't tell you what to do. You have got to analyze your own situation, whether it's with regard to real estate or, or anything else. And you have to decide what you think is appropriate. 
Um, you know, I'm not, you, you can't tell anybody, yeah, go ahead, divorce your wife. It's what you should do. That's, that's not our job. Psychiatrist, maybe, but that's not a lawyer's job. Yeah. And there's, you know, consistent with that, there's a, at least two states that I'm aware of, Virginia and Illinois, who have addressed not so much the foreclosure short sale stuff, but actually have addressed whether or not attorneys can advise their clients as to a breach of the due on sale clause, but whether they can take it a step further and actually prepare the documents needed to effectuate the breach, i.e. purchase contract, a wrap, you know, note and, and, and mortgage. And I will tell you uh, both the, the Virginia ethics opinion and the Illinois ethics opinion basically say yes, um, that you can as long as they are doing it with full disclosure and knowledge of the risks involved. Um, and, and Illinois actually went into the whole idea of efficient, uh, you know, breach and said, Hey, look, you know, there are times where a client's survival may depend, their financial survival may depend upon them breaching a contract. And if that's it, then the attorney can be involved and assist them with that. Um, so that, that helped me sleep a little easier at night coming across those knowing, okay, if I'm doing this creative finance stuff, you know, at least I have now it's not Arizona, but at least I have a couple of state bar opinions right on point, And I'm not aware of any to the contrary. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not. And, um, you know, it, sometimes it comes down to a legal decision versus a business decision. And I think that's what those, uh, opinions may well have been after. You can, you can give legal advice, but the client's going to make a business decision mm -hmm. and, and they, they do. Right. Yeah. It's not our job to give them the business advice. It's to give them the legal advice and then they make the business decision of where to go and what to do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that happens all the time in litigation too, right? You, sure. you say, um, you know, how many times do, you know, clients say, well, how much is it going to cost me to defend this? <laughs> you know, and they offer, you know, a cost of defense. They say, well, it's going to cost me $40,000 to defend this money that I'm never going to get back. So why don't I offer 30 to settle, even though I'm, I don't think I'm liable at all. Right. That's what settlement is all about. I mean, right. You, you do, you look at the cost of litigation in not only in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of it taking your client out of their business when they could be earning good money instead of chasing bad money and all of that, you go to the client, you say, if, you know, if it's not worth it for you to continue doing this, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And they say, fine, we'll, we'll suggest a settlement. You know, the, the idea of, uh, well, you know, for the phrase nuisance value of the lawsuit or whatever, it's a business decision, right? Yeah. So on your creative finance uh, practice, are you working mostly in uh, residential or commercial? I'm working mostly with um, investors. Most of the investors these days now are buying single family and small uh, residential properties. Uh, in DC, for example, that one of the hottest things is a nice foursome. Um, that, that gets into a little bit DC's rent control laws about number of units you can own. But uh, 
most of the truly alternative financing stuff is done there. If you're getting into larger commercial work, if you're buying a shopping center, you're buying an apartment building, it virtually always you're going to be obtaining your own financing because there are a lot of other issues in addition to, um, uh, to just the possibility of creative financing. And a lot of these large uh, uh, buildings only have loans on them that run five years, eight years. A lot of these, you know, commercial loans do that. And so uh, if you're picking up something that's two and three years into its life, you might as well start fresh. So I, I think most of the alternative financing is done with smaller investors uh, in uh, residential retail. Now, with the growing popularity of the alternative or creative financing, and, and you mentioned it, every time the interest rates tick up, it gets it becomes even more popular. But w with with that growing popularity comes the eye of the regulatory agencies, the state legislators, the the federal government, you name it, who decide to put restrictions or they may want to protect the seller, whatever the case may be. So we've seen in some states, you know, an increase or additions of maybe additions to disclosure requirements or, or something along that line. Are there any unique disclosure laws or requirements uh, in a creative finance transaction dealing with a residential type unit in uh, Maryland or D.C.? In Maryland, D.C., it's not related to the form of the purchase. What uh, Maryland in particular is concerned about is that a homeowner who is in distress not be taken advantage of. Uh, there's a law called PIFA, uh, Protection of Homeowners in Foreclosure Act, P-H-I-F-A, um, which basically says that if you, an investor, want to buy a house from a, an owner-occupant, want to buy their principal residence, and they're 60 days or more in arrears, they have to be represented by a real estate agent or an attorney in that transaction, an attempt to keep uh, the foreclosure sharks from taking people's houses. Uh, but if you are uh, represented, you could sell your house in any fashion. And there are circumstances I've seen where the buyer will come in, sellers in substantial default. Uh, the buyer comes in, uh, cures the arrearage. Again, this was a contract done through the real estate agents. They cure the arrearage. They take title subject to the existing mortgage. And normally these are rehab situations. And five, six months later, uh, the property goes back on the market, it's sold for full price, uh, cash, and the mortgage gets paid off. Uh, I would dare say that happens before the bank even knows there's been a transfer of ownership. Right. Um, but that's that's about the point where regulation has struck in, uh, in Maryland. Uh, D.C. Has, doesn't have anything quite similar to that. But I haven't seen anything that would prevent um the use of alternative financing and i don't think i mean if, to, to consult my very cloudy crystal ball i don't think it would pass the maryland legislature hmm. because i think that would again inhibit people from uh selling their property 
as I, as I sort of said in the beginning, if the only way you know to sell property is to go out and get a full a bank loan, uh, then in, in certain situations where that's really not appropriate for the parties, uh, you're not helping anybody by restricting people to that approach. Um, that's where, why alternative financing, alter, creative financing is so, so useful to people. Um, I can't remember who it was who once told me that if the only tool you have is a hammer, all of your problems are going to look like nails. Uh, same way in buying and selling real estate. If you only know one way to do it, you're very limited. Uh, and uh, I think you'd be limited in helping out homeowners who may be in some distress or, or may need to move for some other reason. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. How can uh, viewers, real estate investors who are wanting to do deals in Maryland and D.C., how can they find you and connect with you? Well, a um, bit of ruthless promotion here. Uh, the uh, website is uh, grossesq.com, G-R-O-S-S-E-S-Q.com. You can contact me there um, or the email address mgross at grossesq.com. Uh, and uh, phone numbers on the internet. Um, and if you need anything, I'd be happy to talk to you. We appreciate that. Michael, thanks again so much for being with us and, and getting into the weeds on creative finance. Hope we can do it again sometime. My pleasure. Anytime you'd like. All right. Thanks, Michael. With that, everybody, that is our show. Make sure to join us next week. Have a good one. Have a good day, everyone.